Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ, for that introduction. And I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world, the United States, Canada, United Kingdom, Norway, Germany, India, Israel, Australia, France, Denmark, Spain, Sweden, South Africa, Rwanda, Senegal, Ireland, Burundi, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Pakistan, just to name a few. And I apologize if I missed you, but we have many, many listeners. And your reviews, your comments on the show are what makes us a success. And I sincerely thank each and every one of you for doing that. I also want to start by apologizing to you today. I was just on a speaking tour in the desert. And some people leave their hearts in San Francisco. Well, I left my voice in the desert. So uh, I apologize. But Tony is is uh, our guest today. And he will be speaking loud and clear. So we'll make up for that. Thank you. I am so excited. I have been trying to get together with Tony McAleer to uh, hear his story for some time. When I first read his bio, I was so impressed and thrilled, and I know you will be as well. Tony was an organizer for the White Aryan Resistance, served as a skinhead recruiter, a proprietor of Canadian Liberty Net and manager of Odin's Law, which was a racist rock band. Tony is here today to share his remarkable story of transformation. He is currently Executive Chairman of Life After Hate. What a perfect name, Life After Hate, where he shares his practice of compassion as a presenter of kindness not weakness curriculum. I know that this is just one thing that Tony is involved with. He is going to share many things with us today, and it is going to be an exciting interview. I thank Tony. Thank you for sharing with us today. Thank you for having me. Now, the first question that I have for you is how does a young man, any man, you in particular, learn to hate? That's a that's a great question, and and to answer that, I would almost rephrase the question. Um, when someone's in a place of hate, what what that outward manifestation of their behavior is really is an expression of their disconnection uh, internally, disconnection from their from themselves. So I would almost ask the question, how does somebody become so disconnected? Um, well and, done. And it's. You know, if I look at the things that happened in in my childhood, 
um, the, none of them were extraordinary, and I can go into some of them in a minute. But um, what I've learned is unresolved anger always expresses itself as violence. And 80 or 90% of the time, as young people, um, we express that violence towards ourselves. It can be an eating disorder. It can be cutting, substance abuse, risky sexual behavior. There's a myriad of ways in which we express that violence to ourselves. I chose uh, a youth subculture and an ideology which legitimized and gave me permission to commit that violence to other people. Mm. So when I I grew up in a as a very uh, bright, sensitive uh, kid, you know, if I look at who little four-year-old Tony was, he was mischievous, uh, funny, uh, definitely you know, a little bit of defiance and stubbornness, and again, like I said, bright and sensitive. And I grew up in a household where it wasn't safe to be sensitive, where mm-hmm. the softer emotions expressed by a young boy were ridiculed and, and shamed by my father. Okay. So that began a process where I started – it was painful to feel those feelings, so I started to uh, suppress them. Right? It, it was better not to feel them, and so I would stuff those feelings away and not express them for not wanting to receive the shame and ridicule. When I was 10, I walked in on my father with another woman. And that was the point in my life, uh, and your listeners may want to recall the point in their lives where the god fell off the pedestal, where the the parents that we had, that godlike infallibility, suddenly fell off off of that that pedestal. And that's when I went from a straight A student to uh, starting to have my grades slip. By the time I was in grade six, I was at an all boys Catholic school. I was 11. I was getting, instead of A's and B's, I was getting C's, C minuses, C pluses. And the parents got together with my uh, teacher, decide that perhaps beating me would, would be the encouragement to have me raise my grades because they tried everything else and that hadn't worked. So I was caned every time that I didn't get a B on a major test or assignment with a piece of wood that was about three feet long about two and a half inches wide and and about half an inch thick. Wait, what decade was this, Tony? That would have been the late, late, late 70s. Okay, and they still were doing that. That must be in Canada, right? Yeah, yeah. No, they, okay. Public schools didn't have that. But And then, this was something my parents and the teacher, it wasn't that the teacher was doing it, my parents didn't know. They, they clearly knew. And that really... Um, Angered you? <laughs> oh, so I went, you know, I used to listen to Queen and Elton John with my dad, and that was the music I was listening to, and now all of a sudden I'm listening to The Clash and the Sex Pistols. And, and that early punk rock music, that, that angry vibe really spoke to me, because that, that's where that disaffected youth, that's where I, I was at. And by the end of grade nine, the school said, look, we've had enough. There's not any one thing that he's done worthy of expulsion, but his general level of defiance is so disruptive. We've tried everything, including beatings, and it hasn't worked. So I went off to boarding school in England because I, contrary to uh, media perceptions about uh, skinheads in the far right, I came from a um, middle-class doctor's family. I didn't come from a working-class family. Okay. And while I was in England, I got introduced to the to the skinhead thing, and the skinhead thing was, um, you know, it was a uh, like a, a ultra British 
version of of the punk music scene. And as a British immigrant, I came to Canada with the, with my family when I was two. Uh, like the old expression goes, it's nothing more English than an Englishman abroad. It was the <laughs> ult- it was the ultimate in in that expression, and so I gravitated to the skinhead thing. And and the interesting thing was, is when I started to dress like a punk and as a skinhead, people started become afraid of me. Mm, respect. And respect and power, and I got significance, and 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 it became like a gang and a sense of belonging. And all of those things you can get in a very healthy way in other places. You know, I could have got it if I was captain of the football team, but I wasn't a jock. Um, and so it, the skinhead thing was a more radical offshoot of the punk thing. Within the skinhead thing, uh, particularly the mid-80s, uh, it became uh, racist. And that was a more radical aspect of the skinhead thing. And I, keep go- I kept taking it to another level of extreme. And each time I did that... I got more notoriety. I became a leader, not a not a not a follower, and I've got all of these things that I was craving uh, mm. through the through the violence and through the the uniform and and through the group. I want to point out here, I don't blame anything on my childhood. Uh, I give you some reference to my childhood, really, to give you some context. I chose to do yes everything that I did and I carry a very healthy shame around uh, the violence and the hurt and the harm that I committed to other people uh, but human beings don't do anything without a payoff so to understand what was the payoff you know that's what it was it was for me it was again acceptance approval one of the most successful anti-bullying strategies that I personally developed was befriend the bully become the bully and because uh, I wasn't a tough kid growing up, uh, but I became very, very competent uh, in, in terms of violence. But I surrounded myself with bullies. Mm-hmm. If you want to not get bullied and you're not tough, surround yourself with bullies. And it's one of the safest place to be in the eye of the hurricane. Very and interesting. I, Go ahead. And I continued in, into that extreme. I, I was at Aryan Nation several times and towards the late 80s at, uh, in Idaho. And white Aryan resistance in California I was involved with, as well as other groups across Canada. I got rid of the the, uh, the skinhead uniform and put on a suit and tie so that I could reach more people. And what I learned along the way is that I was able to hurt and damage more people with my tongue and my intellect than I ever could with my fists and my boots. And that was the, the direction that I went. And I had my head so far up my ego uh, – I found myself on the Montel Williams show twice. I don't know if any of your listeners remember him. Mm-hmm. Um, where I I was now preaching my venom to 10 million people at a time, and I was I set up a racist phone line. It went to the Supreme Court of Canada twice and through human rights tribunals, and uh, was stockpiling assault weapons and ammunition, and all, you know all the. All of the stuff that you've heard in different reports, I was there and in, involved with that. But then something happened. Now let's stop. Can we stop before we go into what changed, or were you going to sure. say, were you no. going to say something else? No, I was going to, I was going to get to the moment of, of change. But if you have more questions, yeah, yeah. Let, let's let's back up a little bit. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you when you you mentioned about the godlike pedestal 
that you had your parent on and that a lot of people do. Do you find that this is a common factor? Yes. Yes. In fact, a lot of what I went through, there, there's nothing extraordinary in my childhood. I'm not the only child that was beaten in a Catholic school, exactly. nor was I the only child that had adultery in the household. These, I ended up in maybe an extraordinary place, but there's different pathways that, that those ordinary events uh, can take us to depending on the choices and options uh, available to us. So it's important to remember that because because someone could go through the same childhood and end up in a different place. They could maybe become an overachiever or they could you know, get into a different type of criminality or, or something else. So it's, it's not a, it's not a great predictor of where the person's going to end up, but it's certainly something that has to be dealt with if you're going to deal with someone leaving at it's, the, at the back end. It it's, is. It, it's the human condition. Yes. Right? And I was saying it is a matter of choice, which you did say, and choices is, is the secret there. And you can choose to do one or the other. The choices aren't made for you. Is that correct? No, no. I, I mean, ultimately, I believe that where we are in our life in every given moment is the summation of all the choices we've ever made. Right, right. And if we don't like if we don't like where our lives are at, I mean, I know this sounds simplistic, but um, start making different choices, and your life will and, and your life will change. My father told me that when I was about twenty years old. Thank goodness, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, what pleasure? And what level of pleasure, as you were getting deeper and deeper into this, did you receive? Was it like it started out with being accepted and respect? Was that where it stopped? Or was you know, what were the levels of pleasure that you received? And what motivated you to keep being more and more involved with this group? Well, I think if I go back and look at, at how I was in school from, you know, the, the time of, you know, walking on my father to the time that they expelled me, sort of. Uh, five years later, you know, I look at I would I would never really go over, cross the line very much at school. I would go right up to the line, tiptoe tiptoe across it, and provoke provoke teachers into into reacting to me. And I used to get great delight if I could make a teacher blow their stack because it hmm. meant that I, it meant I had control over them. It meant I had power over them. And when I look at what I was doing in the movement in the 80s and the 90s with my phone line, the TV talk shows and everything, it was the same thing, except I was making communities explode at me. I was making politicians and police forces and and government agencies and civil rights groups lose their stuff. And I got a, a tremendous sense. Of, I was totally narcissistic and in my ego and um, and craving craving attention. I got I got attention from all of it. Uh, I also got disapproval from my father out of all of it too, uh, which can't be can't be ignored. My father was bombed by the Germans during World War II, and uh, there I was. Yes. One one part of me wants to be as British as he is, but the the other part of me has a, a, a giant poster of Adolf Hitler's on my wall. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy who sent the bombs. It's a very interesting way to be angry at your father. No kidding. And where was your mother in all of this? How did she, how did you deal with her, and how did she deal with you? I think I think my mother my mother was heartbroken uh, through it. I mean, I my relations with my parents 
were very poor for for some time. But I will say this about my mother: she never gave up on me. Mm. And and her role in not going completely off the deep end. I mean, I was I was way off the out of the deep end, but um, I think in, in some ways that her love was a tether that uh, gave me even if it was the faintest strand of connection mm. to. To humanity. And are your parents still alive? Yes. So you must have a much better relationship with them now. With my mom, definitely. Um, with my dad. I mean, I have compassion, a great deal of compassion for my father because I think like most parents, uh, and I know his childhood history, mm-hmm. um, most parents just do the best they can with what they know at the time. That's, that's right. And I know the environment out of which he came and, and you know, where every everything was ridiculed and, and emotional wounding. And that's uh-huh, that's uh-huh. what he knows. Sadly, um, as a psychiatrist, um, he never was able to process and deal with that and move on from that. So uh-huh. um, he's still stuck in that space. So my I, c- I can only have a healthy relationship to the extent that the other person's capable of it. That's right. It's a good way to put it. And so I have some clear, um, healthy boundaries around that relationship. And as such, it can never be a close relationship uh, until uh, he can process through some stuff. So that's that's where it lies. You, um, now, you had mentioned, before I rudely interrupted you, <laughs> that, oh, there okay. was, <laughs> that there was a time of transformation. So let's go there now. Well, it was uh, – I was 22 at the time, and I was breaking up with my girlfriend of three months. And she said to me what no young 22-year-old man wants to hear. What do you, what do you think that is? I'm pregnant? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was, it was difficult uh, because, you know, my – my parents did not approve of this woman at all. She was uh, a very poor choice. Okay. And the, I mean, and the relationship was three months old, and I, you know, my life was a train wreck, just the uh, wrong time, place, person, everything. And I remember having to put this decision to tell them off for as long as possible because my, my mom, the nickname my brother and I had for my mom was the was the beak, and and. You know, if you can imagine, like, God bless her, pecking away and be like, Sony, she's going to get pregnant on you. She's she'll ruin your life. You ruin your life. You can't, you can't go out with her. And, and, and um, so I was dreading that, right? So I, I delayed it as long as, as long as possible. And she carried low so that, you know, with a, the sweatshirt at the odd family thing we could go to, we could cruise through this undetected for longer than I thought possible and but it comes the day where I've got to I've got to tell them so I pick up the phone and it's like doo, 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 and you know it's hi mom it's uh it's Michelle she's pregnant and then my mom flips out she's like I told you she'd get pregnant you've ruined your life you've ruined your life and just starts screaming and I can I can hear you know back in the days when we had curly corded landlines right, phones right. banging against the wall and she's can hear heels going across the kitchen floor, and I tell you what, I've never heard more profanity come out of the mouth of a middle-aged English woman. Oh, that's funny. And then I hear my dad's heavier footsteps coming along, and it's, "Hello, Tony, what's your mum all upset about?" And I said, "Well, it's Michelle. She's she's pregnant." 
are you sure? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, and then um, he goes, well, how far along is she? And I, and I said, well, seven and a half. Oh, my goodness. And he goes, seven and a half months. You didn't tell us for seven and a half months. And I said, no, no, the contractions are seven and a half minutes apart. I'm calling <laughs> you from the hospital. Tony. <laughs> They're thankful I did that now because they realize that it would have been, you know, nine months of grief and bickering. Yes, exactly. And, and so I, I, I take, I look back on it now as a heroic act, but it was really an act of total cowardice. <laughs> now, at this point in your life, were you, where were you with the, um, the other side of your life, you know, with the Aryan group, etc. Oh, I was, I was. Up to my eyeballs in it. Okay, okay. So and, this is this is okay. Yeah, and so what what happened? You know, I get off that phone with with my parents, and and 15 minutes later, I'm in the delivery room, and out comes this little tiny baby girl, and and she's her eyes are closed, and she's giving like some squidgy, scrunchy face, and clenching her little fist, and I'm I'm holding her, and she opens her eyes for the first time, and it went through my mind. You're like, this is the this is the first face she'll see in in her life my face is the first picture her brain mm-hmm. will take and it was a it was a kind of a surreal experience i had a feeling that went from the top of my head out down through the bottom of my feet and i knew that something had shifted i had no idea what and it took years to play out but i connected with a human being for the first time since i couldn't remember when because i i was operating completely from intellect and ego and so disconnected from my heart, there was no connection. It's an emotional connection. But now this emotional connection shows up. And, uh, and the interesting thing, uh, and, and this is a, the birth of a child uh, in regards to former violent extremists is, a, is a, a very common story. And in particular, which is interesting, is the birth of a girl. There seems to be something about mm. the feminine coming in, in and really having effect on – someone who's just in hyper masculine and but it's safe to love a child mm-hmm. good right? point they they don't they see through what we think are all our faults and and uh, and flaws and they love us unconditionally and they have compassion for us when we're in pain they see us mm-hmm. not for what we're showing on the outside but they feel the pain and have compassion and and they're, not, they're incapable of rejection until they get to about 9, 10, 11, and, and that seems to be all they, they want to do. But that allowed my my heart to start to open up and to thaw because it was safe to do so. And that um, that compassion piece is, is a key element to um, that I've heard in the hundreds of stories of former violent extremists, not just from the white power movement, um, but from organizations around the world which have come into contact through different conferences and stuff. And so I had thought at the age of 19, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be dead or in jail. I was prepared to be a white, a white revolutionary. I was prepared to be jailed for free speech or for, um, for whatever I was. I mean, there was this whole fantasy element to it and, and tying into the, the hero archetype. And, you know, it was like Viking warriors going off for a pillage. It was this kind of <laughs> ridiculous, ridiculous masculine mindset. Uh, and there was women there too, um, but that that all sort of went away. And 
And so that that started my disengagement. And I started to step away from the movement, create some distance. I didn't um, go to the events as much. I didn't answer the phone as much. And just kind of, I slowly disengaged. And I was I was disillusioned. I was burnt out. Um, And I and my way of rationalizing it without giving up. I was so heavily invested in my identity as as this white warrior and and uh, person standing up for the for the white race. so I had to, how do I, how do I leave, but keep that identity intact? And how I did it was I told myself, why should I care about being Don Quixote jousting the windmill for a bunch of white people, which most of which couldn't care whether I mm-hmm, lived or died? Mm-hmm. Uh, why should I do that? If I really want to serve and make my contribution to the right white race, it's going to be through these two children. I had a son born um, 15 months later. And... Uh, funny story, but I'm not going to tell that one. <laughs> Why not? Uh, you brought it up. No, it's okay. Whatever, Tony. <laughs> I mean, I'll go there. I'll go there quick. I mean, it it was um, it was uh, in both cases, it was sort of a, a sabotage, birth control kind of thing. Okay. And uh, going to growing up with no sisters, and going to uh, a Catholic all boys school, and being told that. Uh, uh, I'm infertile and I, I can't get pregnant. I thought I'd hit hit the lottery because I thought all I thought all women were like the Virgin Mary and told the truth and and okay. I was <laughs> I, I was I felt like a lamb to the slaughter. No, and all kidding aside, uh, I took responsibility for my own actions in that and and raised these beautiful children. Most of most of it as a single parent. Really. Yeah, and that's where my mom comes back into the picture. Now, do you I, have you have two children or do you have more? Two. Just I just okay, have two. Okay, the boy They're and the girl. Okay. Twenty-three and twenty-four now. Okay. Um, and then my mom got involved at that point to help raise the children. And again, that uh, the more time I spent with my mom, uh, you know, the the stronger that 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 tether got. And the more distance I put between myself and the movement, the weaker that those ties became. Uh, but it was still still difficult because the challenge is. When we enter those movements, uh, whatever type it is, we basically excommunicate ourselves from society. And when we leave those movements, we excommunicate ourselves from the, the, the movements that we were once in. And you have to spend a time in no man's land. It's like a purgatory. Uh, because it was like two years before my family would have me back at Sunday dinner. Mm-hmm. And society is, uh, took a lot longer to to forgive. And in that place of loneliness I see being in the movement in that place of of burnt out if you're in that place of negativity in that hate that disconnection uh, in whatever manifestation that it is uh, and I like to say it's the the polar opposite I was living a life that was the polar opposite of little Tony hmm. that little four-year-old was mm-hmm. and, and the further we get away in our lives from the core essence of who we truly are the more difficult life becomes and everything was like swimming uphill. It was in quicksand, and and everything was was a struggle. A struggle. And so you go to leave that, and things the struggle bit can get that starts to get better, but the loneliness kicks in because mm. you don't really have a social circle anymore. And I remember the first social circle that I cultivated out of that uh, after having left the movement, and then I was I think it was at a party and somebody's friend was there and they recognized who I was. And I basically 
uh, was no longer welcome with that that social circle. And oh. I think it happened two or three times, and that's where uh, we can you know, talk about in, in a bit the sort of work that we do is to help people transition through that okay. Okay. that um, void. But so, so leaving the movement, but still having the beliefs and, and identity, even though they they faded over time. That's what we call, uh, or the academics call, um, disengagement. So you you leave, whether it's radical Islam or um, or a white power group or any extreme ideology. Uh, the process of leaving is disengagement. The next step is is what they call de-radicalization, which is the then dealing with the underlying belief systems and and values. Because even though I'd left the movement, I still hadn't dealt with any of the stuff from my childhood that mm. made me angry in the first place. So I ended up self-medicating with alcohol and, and, you know, I was no longer hurting people. I was hurting myself instead. Okay. You know, with that unresolved anger. 2005, I met, I started to get involved in a lot of personal development and, and introspective work. And I met a mentor who, me and him, Hit it off like a house on fire. He's from Manchester. I'm from Liverpool. We both love Monty Python and, and had a bunch of uh, great things in common and really enjoyed each other's company. And I was gifted a, a one-on-one session with him. And his name's Dov Barron. And he's a psychologist and, and mentor. And, and in our first session, I remember he says to me, he goes, you know, I'm Jewish, right? <laughs> and I'm like, of course. Of course you are. And uh, we've had a great friendship and, and worked ever since. But you know, I want to come back to <clears throat> that piece about compassion because that's an incredibly important piece in coming back from that disconnection, whether it's as a hate group or disconnected manifested in a different way. Compassion from someone who we don't feel um, we deserve it from is incredibly powerful. And what a child gives us is just an overdose of uh, of that compassion. But Compassion from a stranger and compassion from someone who we don't feel we deserve it from is is um, a key story that I hear over and over and over again. And so it's important for your listeners to know that uh, you know we never see where the ripples on the pond hit the far shore when we drop a pebble in. But when we introduce compassion and forgiveness in our lives, um, in our daily interactions, and make it part of our identity – We'll never see the change we have on the world, but the change is, is profound. And one of my colleagues, one of the founders of Life After Hate, Arno Michaelis, um, he has or had a, a swastika tattoo on the on the top of his hand, you know, where the thumb meets the meets the hand. And he was in a McDonald's, and an elderly African American woman looked down at his hand. She was on the the cashier, sees the swastika, and looks at him, and says, "Come on." You know you're better than that. Really? And that, you know, if you read his book, uh, My Life After Hate, or hear him talk about it, it's it's something that took two or three years before it really bloomed inside his mind. Um, I bet you that woman probably doesn't remember. You know, that, right, right. Right? But the profound impact that it had on his life and how it changed the, his trajectory um, – is quite profound, even though the person who did it, you know, I've been last week or so meeting with and, and uh, 
sharing the work that we're doing with law enforcement and we and we talk about um compassion and forgiveness and and policing and and a couple of times and i've heard the story over and over and over for police that actually do treat people like like human beings and and with compassion at the same time that doesn't mean that they don't get arrested doesn't mean right, right. that they that justice isn't served it doesn't mean that all of those things but you know he said he busted this guy three or four times and and uh you know almost treated him like a human being and and you know said things to him and he, then he never heard from him for a while and he gets a call six years later and this this guy goes you know i just want to thank you for that thing you said to me outside the squad car when you busted me the third time I uh, really thought about that when I was in jail, and and it's I took it to heart, and it's changed my life. Now that police officer is incredibly proud. Of That's course. one of his finest police moments, but he, he doesn't even remember what he said to the guy. Hmm. Our words have impact, like you said. The ripple effect is amazing. And our and our actions. Yes. Let's talk about forgiveness for a moment. Now you did touch on it a little bit, as far as. Um, you know, like you're having to change your whole social network, et cetera, because of when people found out who you were in the past. Did you have a hard time forgiving people for stereotyping you after you were trying to make the change? No. Okay. Uh, no, I, I you know, because I, I know that some of the, the people that are like, you know, I like you, but I got these friends over here. And, and I said, look, I get it. Um, I'm, I'm not going to let my baggage become your baggage don't worry well you know i'll i'll keep a distance sort of thing and you know i i can't ask somebody for forgiveness because forgiveness it's their journey what That's i can right. do it, it, what i can do is uh i can present myself to the communities which i do when i speak and everything i'm in the communities to make amends for the things that i've done if they choose to forgive me in that process, um, that's their journey. It's part of my journey to forgive myself for the things that I've done. And, and to, you've been able to do that? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say 100%, but I think a great deal of it um, I've been able to do. And that, this is the, the hardest part about forgiveness. If, if we have forgiveness for everybody else but ourselves – that's that's about ego. That's about seeing to be compassionate. It's mm. about seeing to being forgiving. If we have compassion and forgiveness for ourselves and nobody else, that's about narcissism. <laughs> that's right. And and a great example of that being played out at, at, at a sort of a, a societal uh, mind is if we look at, uh, for example, Dylan Roof and and the the shooting in South Carolina, which killed nine African Americans. Mm-hmm. So there was a whole because he came demographically from the majority um, sort of population, the dominant population. So there's all this soul searching. How could this have happened? And 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 sort of trying to understand if he was uh, a young Muslim, there would be none of that. This was this is an act of terror. You know, we need to you know have drone strikes or whatever there's a whole different way of looking at it so as a society when when it comes from within our community we look at it one way uh, when it's when it's an act that comes from the other external to us the perceived other um, we look at it in a very different lens they're both acts of terror no matter who does it if you go into a house of worship 
and kill nine people. That's an in my book, that's an act of terror, and it should be uh, treated the same. But there seems to be sort of the two ways of looking at it, and it's hmm. we're looking at it through the lens of of compassion to self, but when it happens the other way, we don't we don't look at it the same way. And it, in, in to me, sort of is almost indicative of a you know narcissistic society. That's an excellent point. I never thought of that before, but you're absolutely right. Is this one of the things that you talk about when you speak to the um, police groups, et cetera? Yes, ab- absolutely. And and in events like South Carolina, you know the you know one of the the sad sad parts is when we allow things to become red herring, so we avoid dealing with the with the situation. So my fear at the beginning was going to be it's going to be all about gun control. We're not going to deal with the deep undercurrents of, of racism. We're going to make it. But it ended up being about the flag. Now, the flag is, is an important thing to, to look at and its history and, and, and all of that. But the, the problems are not going to be solved by eliminating that flag. Right? And it seems like when that flag was brought down, ah, you know, we've, the job's over. We're done. Um, things are different now. I think it, focus still needs to be uh, put into healing the communities and the attitudes and the rifts that, you know, have been there, you know, before the Civil War and are still there now. Now, do you speak to other groups as well as, um, like you had, you'd only mentioned the police um, groups. What, who else do you speak to and, and, and what kind of programs do you have? Well, our, our pro, a program that we've just launched recently is a program called Exit USA. And what that's a, a, a program of Life After Hate. The Life After Hate's mission statement is to inspire people in communities uh, to a place of compassion and forgiveness for themselves and for all people. Again, focusing on that, that balance. And Exit USA is a program specifically to help people exit extremist groups. We have the there's five of us that run Life After Hate. We were all members or leaders in the, in the far right. And what we do... Is as I talked earlier about that that void and that loneliness. That's precisely where we can help people make that transition and get them onto the path of of uh, making a making amends and get to the the place of self healing and reconnect them with society when when both sides are ready to do that. Because uh, you know if we leave and people say like well why would you why do they deserve any of that? And you know when you're holding on to that. You know whether you're a white supremacist. You know you're when you're holding on to that unresolved anger that I talked to earlier about. Mm-hmm. That's like having a box of radioactive waste in the basement of your house, mm. and it's toxic and it will mutate and distort and poison not just all the relationships and everything in your house, but probably in a three-block radius, right? Um, so when we can get in and remove that toxic waste, I mean. People that are in those sort of the dead end of things like the movement, and there's there's a million places we can go to where we're we're in that dead end. Um, there's one thing that people that experience no joy, and in the 15 years I was in the movement, I can't think of a single person that was truly living a joyous life. The thing that people with no joy are really good at, and that's sucking the joy out of the people around them. Oh my goodness, that's incredible. Say that again. That the thing that people without any joy in their lives, what they're best at doing is sucking the joy out of everyone around them. Hmm. 
So, and, and that, that's really helps that understanding really helps me look at, at myself in terms of self-forgiving and self-compassion, because on the surface, it sounds like a very um, self-serving, uh, almost narcissistic way of looking at things. But if I realize that if I, if I don't do that, I continue to be without joy. And if I'm without joy, I'm sucking the joy out of everyone around me. Right. You know, it's, it, it's my responsibility to is go. Is that them to bring, bring them to your level? Or is that because you don't want them to have joy because you have none? Or right. When, when we're it, when we're operating from that place of disconnected, I don't, I don't even know we're consciously aware of joy, um, but we we're just in that in that space, and we can't help through our actions uh, to be hurtful and harmful. Um, you know, if you're not connected to your heart at all, how can you how can you do very positive, connected things? You know, for your neighbors. So as as a as a you know, if you look at myself as the house, and I know that my toxic Radioactive waste is affecting everyone in a three-block radius. I, I have a duty for my neighbors to go into my house, down into that basement, as uncomfortable as that might be, and open up those boxes and deal with them and get them out of my house, so that my neighbors. And, and I think that, I think that's a key. I think we miss that. That uh, when we think of compassion and forgiveness being a selfish thing, it really isn't. The more I can have forgiveness and compassion for myself, the more I diminish my capacity to har- do harm in the world. You've said some things with a lot of impact. Amazing. Um, what other what other groups though are, are are there? I guess the reason that I want to want to ask this question is: Are you available for speaking, and to what groups would do you speak? Do you share? Absolutely. So we we sort of do teach about peace, uh, peace education, forgiveness, okay. compassion, in a preventative sense. Okay. So we speak to schools, at, we speak at universities. Um, we are experts, and we're doing currently doing government government research with the Department of Justice. We are ex, experts in um, far right extremist groups and extremism uh, in general, and in, in terms of radicalization, de-radicalization, and disengagement. And in, in terms okay. of speaking at a at an event in New York related to the. Uh, to the UN at the end of the month on on that topic, and and we speak to, with civil rights groups and and such and so. Okay, very good. That's law, what I needed. Government, to know. law okay. enforcement, and education. Okay, excellent. Were you terrified when your children were growing up that they would follow in their father's footsteps? Did that occur to you, or how did you cope with that? I. I treated it always as if it was going to be their choice. Okay. Right? So that I, I never, you know, forced them to believe what I believed. I, You know, they went to catechism even though I wasn't a practicing Catholic and mm-hmm. let them uh, live their lives. I mean, I used to listen to music with them when they were really, really early, but um, I don't think that was a, that was a good idea. I mean – I knew that every decision I was making when I was in the movement was negatively impacting their lives. I was so high profile. I was unemployable. Uh, I was receiving death threats. I, there was there was my activities of being part of the movement. I could see were negatively affecting the children. So that's why I extricated myself from the movement and and did so again by by pretending and rationalizing that doing so was in their best interest and their best interest was in the best interest of the white race. 
Hmm. Um, but I gave them, they always had that choice. And they, they know about my history, but they also know I'm, I'm not my history. And they've also uh, observed over the last 10 years the, the very deep, introspective, soul-searching work that, that I've done. Um, and it's actually inspired them to do some of that work as well. And, you know, it's, it's funny. The more I worked on myself and my relationship with me, the better my relationship with the people around me became. It. Tony, um, continue telling us about how this affected your children and, and what you mentioned that you had uh, given them the choice to make their own choices. You didn't beat them over the head and tell them what direction they had to do, and they were also fully aware of um, you know the choices you had made in your life, etc. What advice can you give parents, if any, in this regard? Well, I think... It- you know, and the, you can talk about intolerance or, or talk, like I said at the beginning, this is about disconnection, right? So it's it's understanding uh, how and, and when your child is becoming uh, disconnected. And, and to change that, I mean, we need to provide a safe space for our children to to be who they, who they are. And I would recommend your readers read a book by John Bradshaw called Healing the Shame That Binds You. And it's an excellent book that uh, he believed that toxic shame, um, so there's two types of shame. There's there's healthy shame, which is, you know, I've done something wrong. I've got that awful feeling. I've done something wrong. My cheeks get flushed and like a healthy emotion, it uh-huh. arises and passes away. Toxic shame is that perpetual ember, you know, in our soul. And that's a belief system that we're that we're wrong, we're flawed, we're less than. Hmm. less than human and it becomes um our whole lives then become our choices are made in reaction to that so if i'm feeling less than human there's a couple ways i can feel more than human i can adopt a philosophy which tells me that and proves intellectually that that's the case i can prove that statement true and live a Mm -hmm. life life (laughs) far less than what i'm capable of i can you know i can take that that lie on. Uh, I can even in a I can even become a um, a super or an overachiever. So someone who has that toxic shame could go on to, and we probably all know that person or two in high school that was straight A's, had, was involved in five clubs and captain of the football team. Right. Um, you know, that's always at the expense of of other aspects of their life and relationship and, and such, and they become workaholics and and that type of thing. Um, but those are just different ways that that can can be expressed, and, and this kind of stuff, this toxic shame stuff, uh, he believes is intergenerational. We we pass it on from parent to child, and and it skips generations. And if you read that book, I read it and I went, okay, I know which, I know where I'm at. What was the name of it again? Healing the shame that binds you. Okay. John Bradshaw. And I was able to – it illuminated how I looked at my family. I could see everybody mm. in, in the roles that they were, that they were playing. Um, because as I said before, the, you know, we often do the same as our parents or the exact opposites. And if we're doing that, are we actually – who's controlling our behavior? A very good question. <laughs> it's our parents, right? Yes. You know, it's like the, if you have an alcoholic – What's what? What do an alcoholic and a person who goes to AA have in common? 
I don't know. <laughs> their, li- their lives are both defined by alcohol. Okay. <laughs> right? And so it's the That's same. right. That's right. It's the same analogy. It, it's the same thing. So, um, so hmm. we find that our models for relationship, uh, our behaviors, our likes, our, so a lot of our traits are we either adopt the same or the opposite of our parents. And in which case, they're our parents' behaviors. It's, it's their crap, not ours. And um, the, the great journey in life is to discover for yourself what is, what is you. And it's probably somewhere in between. And so when I was in the, in the, in the movement, I was, as, I was the exact opposite of who little Tony came into the world to be, hmm. that little four-year-old and since then, on my way journey back, it's been about rediscovering who little Tony is and acting in alignment with that. And it's it's layers at a time and it takes time. And But the more that I align myself and get connected to little Tony and the more that my life goes from struggle to flow, from lack to abundance – and I, I think it's uh, – I would encourage everyone of your listeners to, if they're not already doing so, in, engage in that, that, that journey. Because we, uh, we have two people inside of us. There's the, the person we present to society that is, that is the mask that's conforming to, mm-hmm. to group, family, whatever dynamics. And then there's the, the, that core essence – of who we are that holds our dreams, our aspirations, our fantasies, and, and all of that. And uh, when those two are disconnected, life's, life's difficult. And the more we can operate in alignment with that or live in, in integrity with, with who that is, the easier life becomes. And so if you want to understand what, you know, what to do with, with your children, I think the first step you need to do is how to do it with yourself. And the more – I found the more that I – because that was – no, my children still struggled and, and had issues of abandonment and all kinds of stuff in their teens. And it was a very difficult period mm-hmm. to navigate through. But I think the thing that affected them the most positively was me doing work on me because that changed how I relate to myself and how I relate to others. Are, the two are the same. If I can't relate to myself, I can't, I'm incapable of relating to other human beings. A lot of the things you said today comes right back to that. It's dealing with yourself. And I think that's one of the things that that you made very clear was that so many times when we do have this anger, it's we really are angry at ourselves, aren't we? Just like we don't forgive ourselves and all the other difficulties that that encompasses. But uh, we don't want to do that. It's much easier to point a finger and to blame someone else, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and, and so here's the interesting thing is, any type of extremist ideology, which is um, – you, and you can tell when somebody's operating from their head, their ego, because uh, everything is us and them, black and white, very simple solutions to complex problems. And and that's exactly where, where I was. You know, in immigration, it was easy. Just send them all back. It was <laughs> – it was us versus them and, and, and no gray. And – the only way that you can hold that type of extremist ideology or, or religious doctrine or, or it shows there's all kinds of different ways it shows up. Um, the foundation of that, that us versus them ideology is the lie that we believe within ourselves that we come into this world and we're alone 
we're disconnected. We're disconnected from ourselves and we're disconnected to everyone around us. That is the foundation for all of these different types of um, intolerant ideologies. For me, I believe that you cannot hold that type of ideology if you have an open heart. Hmm. Because as the heart opens and you experience connection, like my daughter did for me, <laughs> like my, my mentor uh, taught me and took me through experiential experiences around connection. And as I work to open my heart, it's in direct contradiction to the lie that we previously believed that we're disconnected. And if you can remove that, counteract that lie, all all the ideology and stuff on top crumbles to the ground. And so there's there's a school of thought that says for you know for radicals of whatever variety you know, we just need to go in there and change their mind we need to give them teach them that they're wrong and this is there's a a, a better way to be but there was not a chance ever that you could have done that with me i lived in fortress intellect and mm. and and arguing and debating was a sport for me however that compassion piece cut through that like a knife through butter and in opening up my heart it's they're completely contradictory it's it's incompatible you can't have that ideology with an open heart and it's easier to op- open someone's heart than it is to change their mind i think not a, you know of course there's exceptions very interesting because i would think it would be almost the opposite so it's e- you believe that it's easier to change the heart and to open the heart than to change the mind or the intellect yeah i, I mean <laughs> More powerful for change in, a, in the end run for my belief system came came through a child who couldn't even right, put a sentence together. Right. There was no intellectual, nothing yes, that's intellectual right. about about the effect she had. And you know, so people ask me this question. They go, uh, Tony, do you think people can change? Mm-hmm. And my answer to that is no, but not for the reason you might think. I became somebody, but I never ceased being and having at my core essence, little Tony. And who I that's became. That's who you were. That's who I was. And that never changed. And that, I think, is what my mom never never gave up on. Right. Um, and so I became something totally opposite. I presented myself to the world in a completely contradictory fashion. But, you know, the, the my journey now is, is uh, rediscovering who I actually am. And, and, becoming and presenting that to the world and so no matter how lost you think a child is at the core that uh, that core essence of who they are is always there it's just for whatever reason it's buried under masks and conditioning Um, I became who I was because at the core level little Tony was safer when I was that than when when he was a sensitive little boy What comes to mind when you said that is there is a scripture that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that is exactly what you're saying. The little boy that you were, you once again became, because that is the core, that is the essence, that is who you were, who you are, and who you always probably wanted to be. Yeah, it's it's great fun, you know, and, and part of that journey is actually a lot of a lot of fun, and um, 
you know, Broad, Bradshaw has another book called Homecoming, which is filled with exercises you can do yourself to actually communicate with that part of, of, of who you are. Um, but I, I've taken a day where I've gone and done all the, the things I can remember, my fondest memories growing up in the city and, you know, going to the beach when the tide's out and, you know, having popsicles and <laughs> getting muck all over my feet. And, you know, I even went to, I live in Vancouver and those that have been there, maybe Stanley Park, there's a red fire engine there that I used to love playing on as a kid. I hmm. I went and spent an hour there playing on that. And, you know, I'm in my 40s, but it was, um, there's a lot of fun stuff to uh being childlike for a day. <laughs> yeah. My girlfriend says I may be childlike a little too much, but that's a whole other <laughs> ball game. Oh. One other thing that I change the subject, one other thing I wanted to ask you was you had mentioned unresolved anger a few times. How did you I, I realize you had a you know, you had a definite change and a transformation at the time when your heart opened. But do you feel that there are other ways that we can deal with unresolved anger, especially I want to address in teenagers, because I know this is one of the areas that a lot of women, my women listeners are always concerned, is the anger that is expressed and that is there and how to deal with it um, when you're going through it as a parent. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a tough one, but it, it's how to, I think it's how to establish I think there needs to be a safe place and a way for children to do that. I mean, I I was I went out and acquired and learned tools to do that. Okay. I don't I don't think that we're we uh, we enter parenthood with you know there's no manual. They, right. they don't even they don't even talk about it in high school. You know, and all we all we have is is our parents' model uh, to base it on, and they didn't have a manual either. And and so we we do the best that we can with what we know at the time. But I would I would seek um, external tools and and my mentor uh, mentored my children too. I mean they they went to some personal development and growth workshops to to do some of that and and one on one uh, counseling. You don't have to be uh, you know you don't have to be deranged to to benefit from from counseling. I think it's uh, you know, it's like you can be healthy and still go to the gym and benefit from it. That's right. That's right. That's a good, very good point. There's nothing wrong with suggesting that. No, there's a lot of stigma around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it's it's funny. Some of the some of the tools I, I've you know done a lot of workshop, been in a lot of workshops about relationship and dynamics of relationship and and such and 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 tools to deal with conflict in a healthy way that take maybe an hour or two to teach, not even. And you go, why on earth did they not just give us this 45 minutes in high school? You know, before I go into the world on my own, navigating the world of relationships. Um, it, the, the, some of them are really that simple and not that, <laughs> that complicated, but again, there's no manual, right? Sometimes simplicity just seems too easy. You know, like we have to make it complicated in order for it to work, but that's not true. <laughs> Yeah, and I think you know I've given my my children uh, you know a safe space to you know there's there's things their childhood wasn't perfect there's things that they're mad at me about and I've let them you know without mm-hmm. without defending myself let them express that and given them 
you know, when we start to make excuses or rationalize and, and that type of thing, um, we take away from what they're trying to communicate and we, we make things worse. And I think that, uh, you know, in a respectful way, children need to be allowed to discuss what's, what's coming up for them and, and we need to engage them in a non-judgmental way. And that's it right there. Non-judgmental. And, and then the key to that is, is to park our egos aside for a little mm. bit. <laughs> and, you know, even perception is an incredible thing, right? You know, they say a, a full 30% of our memories aren't real. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what the, the dates, times, facts are. It's the perception of the event by a person is what matters and, and how they're processing it. So even if your version of things is a little bit different, um, I think you just you, you can't you can't use that to interfere with letting them express what they're what they're feeling so they can get it out right. I mean, if if it's a safe place for them to get their anger out in a healthy way, mm-hmm. then then it doesn't get stored up. It's when we don't allow them that space that it gets stuffed down in into the basement and the boxes of toxic sludge start to build up. I really believe, and I think this goes along with what you're saying, is that a very important issue, in, especially in teenagers, is, but it's developed even uh, when they're very young, and that is trusting them. And when they know that they are trusted, at least this is my own personal experience, they will open up more. They know that you're so. not going to judge them. And you really are giving them the choice because you are trusting them to make their own decisions rather than you can't do this, you can't do that, etc. So trust goes right along with what you're saying, I believe. My personal philosophy to raising my two children was I looked at they were playing in a sandbox. I gave them a nice big sandbox to play in. Um, if they were having a problem with other people, that, they, that was something for them to sort out. The second that they got to the boundary of that sandbox – that was the point where I would intervene, hmm. right? There was sort of bound, healthy, mm-hmm. safe space for them to play in. The second they went outside that, they were entering an unhealthy space, you know, and that's relative for subjective for, for everybody. But right. um, I let them fail. I let them skin their knee. I let them choose <laughs> things and within, within reason, right? Within, within the confines of that, that box. And... I think I mean it's it's worked out it's worked out well. That's I mean, good I'm, news. I'm that's, so it's easy for me to say. That's right, but that is very good news, and I'm sure that that is absolutely accurate. Well, Tony, it has been enlightening, to say the least. Definitely enlightening, and your uh, t- your story is one that we have not even you know approached in the past on this show. So I really appreciate you sharing and is there anything you want to say to sum it up or do you have a website let's yeah www.lifeafterhate.org okay is uh, is our website and if you want to reach me by email it's tony at lifeafterhate.org and if uh, if there was anything i wanted to say in a in a comment it's it's really you know if we want to see a change in the world in our families in our communities uh it's not about waiting for some uh great proclamation from a a leader to sign a pen and it all goes away it starts with every action 
in every moment of every day. We want to tackle intolerance. We have to talk, look at where we're being intolerant with each other in our own households. And it begins it begins at home <laughs> first. We, we, we have to inspire the change in others that we wish to see. And on that, I believe that's an excellent note to close. Thank you again, Tony. This has been great, and I really appreciate it. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope, featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.